This morning, we're going to start off in a little bit of a different way than we typically do. I'm going to ask you to jump in here and contribute a bit to this introduction. We're going to start off with some Bible trivia in our time together this morning. Does anyone know how many chapters there are in the Old Testament? Anyone from memory can tell me how many chapters there are in the Old Testament? Nobody? Anybody want to take a guess? 422. Higher. All right, you're giving up. All right, I get it. There are 929 chapters in the Old Testament of the Bible. How about the New Testament? Anybody want to take a gamble at how many chapters there are in the New Testament? 450, that's too high. It's actually lower than that. 333, lower. 238, that's really, really close. There are 260 chapters in the New Testament. Now for you math whizzes out there, how many is that total? I'll just give it to you. It's 1,189 chapters in the entirety of Scripture. Okay, this is a little bit trickier question. How many of you know what that makes the middle chapter in the Bible? Chapter number 595. Not Psalm 69, but you're very close. Psalm 118. Whoever said that, you are spot on. Psalm 118. Now finally, most significantly and most seriously... Does anyone know what the theological and eschatological or end times significance of that number and Psalm 118 being in the middle of the Bible is? 594 chapters before, 594 chapters after, what's the theological significance? Good guess. That's not the right answer, but good guess. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely no eschatological significance. Much as a grin of internet people and bloggers all over the world, there is no eschatological significance to Psalm 18 or 118 being at the center of the Bible. Uh, despite it not being about end times and uh, that whole area, uh, this information is actually helpful to you this morning, however, because it means if you open your Bible right about in the middle, you'll find Psalm 118, and I would encourage you to do that. Uh, here this morning as we'll be studying Psalm 118. Forgive me uh, for, the, <laughs> for the levity there. Uh, I heard an introduction that was very much like that at one point. I was like, I couldn't pass up on the opportunity to see if anyone knew some of that trivia. Uh, but in addition uh, to not being about eschatology, Psalm 118 is immensely significant for us, uh, both as a model for our worship and also as a key messianic psalm, as a key psalm predicting the coming of Christ. In fact, this psalm is what's known as a praise or a hallel psalm. It's the first of that type that we've covered in our series here so far this summer, a psalm of worship and praise to God. Nice bit of a retreat from the lament and the imprecatory psalms we've covered so far. More specifically, Psalm 118 finds itself in a collection of psalms known as the Egyptian hallel. Psalm 113 through 118 are psalms that celebrate the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. And so as a result, they would have been sung every Passover celebration as the Israelites anticipated their coming Messiah. In fact, there's a very good chance that Psalm 118 is the hymn that Jesus and his disciples sung after the Last Supper as they headed out to the Mount of Olives in Matthew 26, verse 30. It's a psalm of praise for God's deliverance of the people and would have been sung 
at the Passover. It is also one of the most referenced messianic psalms in the entirety of the New Testament, quoted or alluded to at least 23 times in our New Testament. It is replete with words and examples of Christ coming, the Messiah who would come as the king to save his people. And as a result, I think it will be immensely encouraging to us as we study it together this morning. Read with me Psalm 118, verses 1 through 29. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper, what, or I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Father, this is an incredible psalm to be studying in our time together this morning. It expresses the joy that we have in the salvation we have found in Christ. Father, it is an honor to be gathered together for worship together this morning to be called together with your people, to celebrate what you've done for us, what you're doing in us, and the promises you've made to us. Lord, as we study this psalm together, I do pray that you would guide our discussion, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that you would give us insights and you would give us soft hearts. Lord, that you would speak through me. Help me to be in step with your spirit as I proclaim your word boldly. And Father, exalt Christ above all else in our meeting together. Help him to be lifted up and the salvation he has given us through his shed blood that we've celebrated in communion to be the central focus of our time together. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, in case you haven't been with us, over the last four weeks in our studies so far, we've covered four different psalms. 
First, we looked at Psalm 1 that described two different ways to live, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, and it begs the question through the rest of the Psalms, which way are you going to choose? In Psalm 2, we were introduced to the Lord's anointed, the one who would come, who would be the king-like figure that we were to look for in the Psalms and would be Jesus Christ. Two weeks ago, in our first imprecatory psalm, or psalm of judgment, we saw the line, Save me, O God, in Psalm 69, as the psalmist cried out for God's deliverance and judgment on the wicked, and how he expressed Christ's affection for the Lord's temple that the gospel writers pick up on. Then last week, we had a psalm of lament in Psalm 40, as we picked up on the phrase, I delight to do your will, O my God, in Psalm 40. Now we come to Psalm 118, and Psalm 118 is what's known as a corporate praise song. The entire psalm revolves around the congregation's worship of God as they gather to celebrate and to sing God's praises, and so the layout looks somewhat like this. It'll be a bit familiar to us. First, in verses 1 through 4, we see a call to worship, a call to worship, which will be familiar with what you see in worship services today. In verses 5 through 7, you next see the case for worship, an argument for what and why we praise God, different things that are worth extolling and praising Him for. And then lastly, he takes an interesting turn in verses 18 through 27, and we see the king in worship. The call to worship, the case for worship, and the king in worship. Not surprisingly, like many of our modern day services, the psalmist begins with a call to worship. Look at verses 1 through 4. He introduces his overall premise for the psalm, a line that will be repeated twice in the psalm at the beginning and the end. He says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. He seems to have in mind three different time frames and three different things that are worthy of celebrating God for. First, he gives thanksgiving for this past rescue that he has received from God. Give thanks to the Lord for what God has done. Then he declares God's goodness, for he is, present tense, good. And then lastly, he declares trust in future enduring love, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the point of the psalm. This is the point of this corporate worship service that they are celebrating as they gather together. They celebrate God's character, his actions, and his promises to his people. And so, not surprisingly, he invites the congregation to join in on the celebration. Verses 2 through 4, we see the congregation's cry. He tells them to participate in this celebration of what God has done. And he has three different groups in mind. You probably picked them up. He says, let Israel say, let the house of Aaron say, and let those who fear the Lord say. This would have been a psalm used in actual worship ceremonies, and probably what would have taken place is the worship leader up front would have addressed the congregation, would have addressed Israel, and would have said, let Israel say, and the people would have responded with, his steadfast love endures forever. Then he may have turned around and addressed the priests behind him and said, let the house of Aaron, the priests, say, his steadfast love endures forever. And then he said, let everyone say, his steadfast love endures forever forever. Together, they boldly declare God's steadfast, enduring love, which begs the question, what is God's steadfast love here in this verse? We've said it at least four times already in the sermon. What is he talking about? Well, the term here is really, really important from the Old Testament. It's the term chesed. 
It's used about 200 times throughout the Old Testament, and it's translated steadfast love, and it conveys the idea of God's covenant faithfulness and loyalty to his people. And so it comes up when God makes his covenant with Abraham, and it comes up when God promises David that he will have a son that will always sit on the throne, and it comes up multiple times in the Psalms, and always God is declaring his covenant loyalty and faithfulness to his people. He says, I will not change. I will continue to be faithful to my promises. So, in this call to worship, the worship leader encourages the body to participate and to declare the goodness and faithfulness of God. And so, we're going to step a little bit outside of our comfort zone, and I want to give you a sense for what this would have felt like, okay? So, here's my instructions. I want to read through this section again, and to get a sense for what it would have felt like, what I'm going to ask is for this left group over here, or right as you face me, this group over here, when I say, let Israel say, I want you to respond with, his steadfast love endures forever. Can you do that? Okay. Thank you very much. Okay? And then we're going to let this side over here be the house of Aaron. You pretend to be the priest, and when I say, let the house of Aaron say, you're going to say, his steadfast love endures forever. And then I'm going to say, let all or let those who fear the Lord say, and I want everyone to respond with his steadfast love endures forever. And just get a sense for what this would have felt like. Okay? Can we do this? Let's see if we can follow instructions. All right? Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, Let the house of Aaron say, Let those who fear the Lord say, See how that prepares your heart and your mind to worship God? How he ushers them into remembering God's covenant faithfulness. God literally calls his people to worship. He reminds them that his covenant love is what constituted them and created them as a people. They wouldn't have existed apart from God's faithfulness and love to them. And it is therefore a source of worship for them as they gather corporately together. And that is just as true for us today as it was for the people in the Old Testament, is it not? We must recognize that God's covenant love is the source of our shared identity. We call ourselves Christians because we're followers of Christ, the one who enacted the covenant that forms us as a community. And so we are called together in the identity and name of Christ. We worship together and we have a shared identity together this morning because of God's covenant love and faithfulness to us. We need to recognize that as we walk in on a Sunday morning that the reason we are here is because God has lavishly poured his love out on us through the person and work of Christ. And having recognized that, we also need to embrace the fact that we are not the ones that make this happen. God has called us together. God is the one who demands that we worship him. He says, my people will gather together to sing my praises because I absolutely deserve it. We must embrace the fact that we are called to worship, most importantly, by God. We worship not for the people on the stage. The stage people do not worship for the people in the congregation. We all sing to an audience of one. We all sing because we are called together to worship by God. We are called to worship by God. But from this public call to worship, it feels like a member of the congregation almost steps up and makes a case for why we should worship. In this next section, verses 5 through 17, we see the case 
for worship. And this worshiper demonstrates at least three reasons that we should worship God. First, we worship God for his past rescue. Look at verse 5. He says, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. Much like the lament psalms last week and two weeks ago, he cries out to the Lord, but this time there's an answer. God answers him and sets him free. The following section, verses 10 through 13, provide a little bit more detail. Jump down there in your Bibles about exactly what's going on to the psalmist. He says, all nations surrounded me. They surrounded me. They surrounded me on every side. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. I was pushed hard so that I was failing. He describes the situation that he's facing of being surrounded by his enemies and being attacked on every side like bees or like fire. Have you ever witnessed this take place? Have you ever been surrounded by a swarm of bees or by a fire that is encircled around you and you weren't sure where to go? I have a vivid memory of this taking place to me, and I can say this because my younger brother isn't here anymore. Some of you know Sean, my younger brother. He attended here for some time. And uh, when we were younger, when we were little kids, there was a tree that my dad cut down in our front yard. He cut down the tree, and so as a result, there was this stump that was about yay high, and then he built this play set on top of it with a slide and with all, all the stuff that you know, little kids enjoy playing on, right? And we played on that year after year after year, but unbeknownst to us, one year as we went out to play for it, or play on it, a swarm of bees had made a nest inside the tree stump, and we went out to play on top of it. Well, my younger brother, whom many of you know, uh, decided that his, the best idea would be to take a large pipe, and he just sat out there on top of it, and he just banged the pipe on the top of this, this, well, he didn't realize it was on top of this bee's nest. And I have a vivid imagery of the bees pouring out of that tree stump and swarming around my brother and covering him everywhere. And like any good older brother, in that moment, I headed for the hills. <laughs> like, forget it, I'm getting mom and dad, you're, good luck. Right? And I remember my mom running from room to room, pulling bees out of his hair. It is still shocking to me to this day that my younger brother is not allergic to bees as a result of this experience. But that's what I think of when I read this. They surrounded me like bees, all the nations surround me. There's no getting away from them. The, the punishment is just overwhelming. And it feels much like our previous Psalms of Lament that we've talked about as we cry out to God for help. But in contrast to those Psalms, rather than just the situation, we also see that God has already brought the solution. In verses 10 through 13, he lays this out. He says, in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. So that I was failing, but the Lord helped me. He describes the solution to this being victory. He says, in the name of the Lord, I cut them off or I defeated my enemies. But he recognizes that the ultimate source is God's power. Verse 13, but the Lord helped me. He didn't achieve victory in his own strength. He didn't achieve victory in his own power. God helped him. And so the psalmist expresses how he has been rescued by God, and he says that is a source of worship for his people. We worship God for his past rescue, looking back to moments in our life when he has come through for us, when he has been faithful to us. You have a moment like that in your history? 
A moment in your life where God's hand was so clear to you that you knew he had rescued you out of a difficult situation? Looking back to moments like that are a source of worship for us today. But in addition to that, the worshiper also grounds his worship in God's present goodness. Look at verse 6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It says, even now the Lord is beside me. The Lord is on my side. And then verses 14 through 16 express this a little bit more. Notice the present tense in those verbs. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He expresses God's goodness here, God's faithfulness. God is said to be strength, our source of victory. He is said to be a song, our source of joy. And he is said to be salvation, our source of security and hope. He expresses God's goodness. He says, God is good to me today. He is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And the result of God's goodness is celebration, verses 15 and 16. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The psalmist responds to God's present goodness by singing his praises, by declaring God's goodness and his attributes, how the Lord is valiant and exalts how the Lord does valiantly. So in addition to worshiping God for his past rescue, the psalmist also grounds our worship in God for his present goodness. We can celebrate God for the goodness of every day. The fact that you woke up this morning is a blessing from God. The fact that you have another breath in your body is a blessing from God. There are so many things day in and day out that we can be thankful to God for. And the psalmist says we worship God for his present goodness in our lives. So we worship God for his past faithfulness, we worship God for his present goodness, and we also worship God for his future love. Look at verse 7. The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It says, God has promised me victory. He has saved me in the past. He is good to me today, but he has promised future victory as well. And so as a result, the worshiper can interpret their current trials appropriately through the lens of God's goodness. Look at verse 17 and 18. How he interprets his trials here. He says, I shall not die, but I shall live. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. He looks at the, good, the Lord's faithfulness, his promise of future victory, and so he interprets the struggles he's going through today as discipline not death. The Lord disciplines the son in whom he loves, right? The challenges, the trials we face today when we recognize that God has promised ultimate victory through his son one day, the trials we face today can be interpreted as a refining testing of our faith, as James 1 would put it. And so as a result, we can look at our trials appropriately and see what they're meant to produce. Look back at verse 17. I shall not die, but I shall live, and recount the deeds of the Lord. Even our current trials can be the promise that one day we will look back on those circumstances and those situations in our life, and we will praise God for how he brought us through them. It may not be in this life, it may be in eternity, but we'll be able to look back on those trials and say, I can recount the deeds 
of the Lord to me. So we worship God for his past rescue, we worship him for his present goodness, and we worship him for his forever enduring steadfast love to us. The promise of future victory. And all of this is made possible, all of this worshiping of God as we gather together is possible because God is unchanging. He is past, present, and future, the same God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will not change. He will not move. He will not fail us. And that's a source of our worship, which is why the psalmist can introduce this eternal principle in verses 8 and 9. Look at it. He says, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Psalmist extrapolates this from God's unchanging faithfulness, much like we discussed in Corinthians or in 1 Corinthians 1 through 4. Our faith, our hope, our strength, our trust rests not in men, it rests in God. It doesn't rest in any person. And that's essential for us as we worship God to say our trust, our faith, our hope is in you, Lord, not in men. And in that way, it's much like math. Those of you who know me very well, you know that I'm a math person. I'm not an English guy. I did not like English growing up, which is really ironic considering most of my time is spent reading books anymore. But I like math, and the reason I like math is it's extremely reliable. One plus one always equals two. Two plus two always equals four. And one of the great parts about math is math has two different type of numbers, basically. They have mathematical constants, which are numbers that represent real numbers, and then you have mathematical variables, which are X, which I know as you get into algebra, some of you begin to glaze over, and you're like, I have no idea what that's talking about. Why are they putting letters in math? Constants, variables. The psalmist is essentially making the same point here. He's saying, people are like variables. You never know exactly what you're going to get, but God is a constant. He's reliable. He is unchanging. He is faithful. He is good. He will rescue. Now, how does that principle affect our worship? How does that principle affect the way we gather to worship corporately and how we worship God privately? It means that our worship should be at least three things. And bear with me. I know these words are going to be a little bit tricky, but bear with me. First, our worship should be historical. Our worship should be historical. It should be grounded in God's faithfulness to his people. As you read through the Old Testament, recognizing that that is your story as well. The story of how God brought salvation to a fallen people. We can rest in God's faithfulness because he's done it again and again in the past. Our worship should be historical. It should also look back to the times in our lives that God has been faithful to us. We talked about mile markers in Joshua 4. We talked about these stones of remembrance and celebrating what God had done in the past. That should impact and motivate your worship today. Our worship should be historical. Our worship should also be theological. The source of the psalmist's worship here is the character of God. Some of us have a tendency to think that because we're just laymen, we don't like to read books too much, we're not theologians. If you are a worshiper, which everybody is, you are a theologian. It is your job to declare God's character and his goodness, to respond back to him in praise for who he is because he is so good. And that means that your job is to read through the scriptures and discover God's goodness and to declare his praise in what you see in the Bible. 
Our worship ought to be theological. We ought to seek to discover more about who God is and proclaim His praises for it. And lastly, our worship should be doxological. They go, what? Okay, let me explain what I mean here a little bit, okay? Doxological comes from the word doxology, which means to declare God's praise or glory. This is a bit of a tangent. It's not in my notes, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. One of my, one of my pet peeves is the distinguishing between benedictions and doxologies. A lot of times you run into them at the end of New Testament books, and a benediction is different than a doxology. A benediction is a blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause your face to shine upon you and be gracious toward you and give you peace. That's a blessing. That's a benediction. As opposed to a doxology, which is declaring God's greatness and goodness, like the end of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before now or before all time now and forevermore. You see the difference in orientation. A benediction is oriented toward people. A doxology is oriented toward God. Our worship should be doxological. It should be oriented toward God, toward His glory, not focused on us, not focused on the people on the platform, not focused on our opinions and our thoughts and our preferences. Our worship should be doxological. It should be about God's glory. Our focus should be entirely upon His goodness and His greatness and His love, not on ourselves. It is a scary thing to consider that most of the worship that probably takes place in our country here on Sunday morning is a worship of us. Our worship ought to be historical, theological, and doxological. Because God's acts, characters, and promises should fuel our worship, both privately as we go about our weeks and corporately as we gather together on a Sunday morning. From there, the psalmist takes an unexpected turn, an unexpected direction, and we see the king in worship in verses 19 through 27. This expresses kind of the ceremonial use of this psalm, how it would have been used during the royal march or the ceremony as the king came in to help lead worship. In fact, this section of the text feels very much like First, or First Chronicles 15 and 16. It would be an interesting read for you this afternoon if you have the time where David brings the Ark of the Covenant into the city and sets it up in the tent and he praises God and sings God's praises and he helps lead the congregation and the people in the worship of God. This feels very much like that. And it gives us a really interesting picture of the king being involved in the worship of God. It seems to include three main components. Try to build this image in your mind as we read through this section. First, we see a royal entrance, the king entering. Look at verses 19 through 24. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them, and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Begins with this incredible entrance as the king enters through the gates. Open the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. And he recounts again in verse 21 how he has been saved by God. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. But then we run into some surprising yet familiar Language, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become 
the cornerstone. The king is rejected but essential. You following with me here? And then lastly, God's intervention in history is celebrated, verses 23 and 24. What we see here in this royal entrance of the king is, though rejected at first, the king's entrance is celebrated and glorious. Now, I know where some of your thoughts are likely going. Hold on to that for just one moment. I want to get through this section before we go there. Because once the king has arrived, a prayer is offered up, and we see a royal prayer in verse 25. It says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. The king's arrival initiates a prayer for both salvation and success. The king's arrival initiates the need for God's intervention as he asks the Lord to save and to provide success. But there's one final component here in this celebration, the king's involvement. We see a royal blessing, verse 26 and 27. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. His blessing is directed at the entering king as he comes in the authority and name of the Lord and then celebrating the Lord's blessing in verse 27. We see that the king's authority is derived from the Lord and is viewed as a blessing from God. Now think about this just a bit. We see this royal entrance, we see this royal prayer for salvation and success, and we see this royal blessing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In case you haven't picked up on it at this point, there's something greater than the king of Israel going on here in this psalm. There is a greater king than Israel's king in mind here in this section of Psalm 118. The entrance of Israel's kings were celebrated and they were glorious in their own right. But ultimately, they pale in comparison to Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, do they not? In verse 25 and 26, the people of Jerusalem spontaneously pick up this language from Psalm 118 as they say, Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they spread their coats on the road and they wave palm branches because they say, Christ is this king coming to save us. And though... A week later, they would turn on him and crucify him. They still spoke more rightly than they knew. That this language was meant to anticipate the true king who would come to Israel to save people from their sins. But in addition to that, the Jews also prayed that their king would bring salvation and success. They prayed that God would bless their kings. But only Christ can be said to have truly saved his people. In fact, multiple places in the New Testament pick up on verse 22 where we read, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is referenced in Matthew 21, verse 42, in Acts 4, verse 10, in Romans 9, verse 32, in Ephesians 2, 20, and in 1 Peter 2, 6, and it says that that cornerstone is Christ. That cornerstone is Christ, and he functions in two capacities. He functions as the foundation for all that would place their faith and trust in him, and he functions as judgment upon anyone who would reject that cornerstone. Pulling from Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The 
gospel writers and the New Testament authors say this is referring to Christ. This cornerstone is Christ. What will you do with him? They repeat again and again and again. And lastly, Israel's kings were authorized agents. They were blessings from God, but only Christ came personally as the authority, as the blessing, as the light that Psalm 118 anticipates. Psalm 118 cries out for the king's involvement in worship, but more than that, it cries out for the king who is the object of our worship. It cries out for a king who would come and save his people, not just from their distress, not just from their enemies that were on every side, but to save them from their sin. And so Christ came in fulfillment of Psalm 118. He came to put to death our sin, to put to death death, to save us from our sin, and to be the king that Psalm 118 truly anticipates. And he offers himself up as a cornerstone, asking each and every one of us, what will you do with me? Will you build your life upon the cornerstone that is Christ, or will you fall on that cornerstone and be dashed to pieces? Psalm 118 anticipates Christ's coming. And that is fact is what makes his conclusion in verse 28 and 29 so incredibly appropriate. As we read, you are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. I give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 118 is simply amazing. It has in mind these three historical periscopes. It looks back and co-ops language from the Exodus. You may have picked up on that as the psalmist steals from Moses' psalm of praise in Exodus 15 and interprets the salvation of this king through the Exodus template, saying God saved his people in the past. He can do it again today. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He takes that language and he applies it to Israel's king today in the time of this writing as he celebrates the Lord's role in sustaining and helping the kings of Israel. But then more than that, he anticipates the messianic realities in Psalm 118 as well. As these verses that we've talked about anticipate a true king, a true Messiah, who would come to save his people. Psalmist models practically how we are created as a people under God's authority, how we are called to worship by God. He models how worship of God comes from our past rescue by him, of God's goodness for us today, and of his future faithfulness and love to us. And then he celebrates the king's role in all of that in worship. But more than that, more than that, as always, Psalm 118 anticipates the king of worship. Psalm 118 looks forward to a king who will righteously enter Jerusalem with great fanfare who will be rejected but ultimately become the cornerstone for his people and who will come to bring salvation, blessing, and light to all the nations of the earth. As a result, Psalm 118 gives us, admittedly, language with which to worship God, and appropriately so. But more than that, it gives us a description of the promise of a perfect king, one who makes worship possible and one who is the object of our worship. Psalm 118 presents Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and it teaches us how to worship him appropriately. Amen? Let's pray.
Father, we have sung about incredible realities of your faithfulness and your love and your goodness. We've studied how your word calls us to worship you, how it creates us as a people, how your love is what creates us as a people and calls us together to worship you. Lord, we praise you for the way you have saved us in the past, how you have rescued us from circumstances and challenges in life, but more than that, from our sin. Lord, we praise you for your goodness to us today, how your mercies are new every morning, and how we can rely on you day after day to be good and to be loving and to be faithful. And we look forward to the promise of future victory with Christ, that this life isn't all there is, and one day we will be seated in heaven with Christ as we celebrate him into eternity. Father, help Psalm 118 to be a continual source of joy and worship in our hearts, even as we head out into another week. Use it to focus our minds and our thoughts on Jesus Christ and to cause us to worship you because you are truly worthy of our worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.